Maybe you've heard the saying, kids say the darndest things. Heard that before? Well, we're at church, so let's spiritualize it just a little bit. Kids pray the funniest things. And if you don't believe me, I've got some proof. Here's a list of some kids' prayers compiled by Danny Merrill. Dear God, my mom tells me you have a reason for everything on earth. I guess broccoli is one of your mysteries. Please tell my parents, or please make my parents understand that if I don't eat salad, I do better at school. Amen to that. Please forgive me for hiding my sister's favorite doll, and please don't tell her where it is. (laughs) This is maybe my favorite. Dear God, I need you to make my mom not allergic to cats. I really want a cat, and I don't want to ask my mom to move out. I don't like cats that much. If it was dogs, eh, maybe it'd be a different story. But dear God, when will my sister stop being annoying? I'm down to my last patience. (laughs) Dear God, I promise to never say those words again, at least until my next shots. Fair. Here's the last one. Dear God, I hope my dog is with you in heaven. Please take care of him. Sorry if you choose your sandals. <laughs> uh, see, I think we're attracted to something in kids' prayers because they talk to God just like he's their friend. They have a genuine conversation with him. And then as we get older, we feel like we have to be a little more sophisticated. Or maybe we have a hard time talking to somebody that we can't see. Or maybe we just kind of get inside of our own head just a little bit. Prayer can be hard. Maybe you don't remember the last time you prayed for anyone except yourself. Or maybe you don't remember the last time you prayed for more than a minute, period. Maybe you've been praying for the same thing for years and years and years, and God's not answering, and it just feels like he isn't listening. Prayer is hard. But prayer is one of the measuring sticks in a healthy relationship with God. It's a gift. Prayer is an opportunity to have a conversation with our Heavenly Father, the creator of the universe. But I don't know if I know any Christians that would say, wow, I'm great at prayer. I excel at prayer. I've reached all of my prayer goals. I I have the model prayer life. If that's you, here you go. That is not me. I'll be one of the first to admit that prayer is hard. It's a challenge. Now tonight, as we start off our vision for 2022, we're going to talk specifically about how to pray for people who are far from God, how to pray for people who don't yet have that relationship with Jesus. Remember our our vision, the power of one, pray for one person a day, engage one person a week, and invite one person a month. Tonight, we're going to start with prayer. But before we talk about how we can pray for people who are far from God, who don't have a relationship with him, we've just got to talk about prayer, period. Because if I had to guess, there's room for growth for each one of us in our prayer life, in our conversations with God. Now, I know it's tempting when we enter into a message about prayer to feel this sense of guilt, feeling like, I'm just not good at this. There's like so much to be desired in my prayer life. I, just, I could do so much better at talking with God. I want us to work together 
to resist the temptation for guilt tonight. Not looking to the rearview mirror about how prayer looked in 2021. I also look forward tonight to see the opportunity that we have to have a conversation with our Heavenly Father. So we're going to enter into Jesus' school of prayer tonight in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Or if you want to pull out your phone, favorite Bible app, you can turn there. I'll be reading out of the ESV tonight. And we're going to look at a text that is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Now, some people call it the disciples' prayer because it was really a prayer for the disciples, not for Jesus. He was teaching us how to pray. But church history calls it the Lord's Prayer. So I'm just going to refer to this text as the Lord's Prayer tonight. Now, I grew up going to Lutheran grade school. And part of the liturgy in in the Lutheran services uh, at the school were that we would recite the Lord's Prayer. So it didn't take very long for me to have the, the prayer memorized. But some of you maybe are familiar with this, I wasn't when I was in grade school, that there's a difference between the Lord's Prayer and Lutheran liturgy compared to Catholic liturgy. In Lutheran liturgy, there's a, an extra line at the end, which is in some of the manuscripts, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. In a Catholic service, they don't say that last line of the Lord's Prayer. So when I was 10, we were at a family wedding at a giant, beautiful Catholic cathedral. And right in the middle of the ceremony, everyone stands up and we recite the Lord's Prayer. And for me as a 10-year-old, I was pumped, like, man, I have this thing memorized. I was belting this thing out of the top of my lungs. And then we get to the, for thine is the kingdom. And who kept going when everybody else stopped? This guy. And you can imagine that I got the death glare from my grandma, who was sitting one row in front of me. Like, sorry, grandma. And then I realized that the prayers were different. But just because I had the Lord's Prayer memorized did not mean that I understood what it meant. For thine is the kingdom, thine, thine. I hadn't read Shakespeare yet. I had no idea what that meant. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay, if I'm being honest, I want more than bread to eat today, right? Or our father who art in heaven, like there's an art museum in heaven. Like what? That doesn't make any sense. Hollowed? What does that even mean? I didn't understand what it meant. I didn't understand what it meant. And maybe you're here tonight and maybe you have the prayer memorized. You could recite it. We could stand up and say it together, but you've never really thought much about what it means. Or maybe you had no idea there was a prayer in Scripture called the Lord's Prayer. Whatever your background is on this text, we're going to dive into this tonight and learn a little bit about prayer from the school of Jesus. But before Jesus gives us a model prayer, he actually sets some parameters on how to pray. So I'm going to start with uh, Matthew 6, verse 5 says this, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Did you catch that second word? And if you pray, is that what it says? No. Jesus said, and when you pray. Jesus is assuming that prayer, having a conversation with our Heavenly Father, is part of the rhythm of the Christian life. He says, when you pray. But then Jesus 
points out the hypocrites. And you can picture what happens. Uh, maybe it's a, somebody who stands up in the synagogue, which is their place of worship, or somebody who stands on the street corner and is having this lofty, beautiful, elaborate, theological conversation with God. But what are they doing? They're just trying to attract attention. They're trying to get people to think, wow, look at him. He's really holy. He has a close connection with God. They're praying to the audience rather than their audience of one. And Jesus calls that hypocritical. He actually calls them hypocrite. That's not what we call a great compliment coming from Jesus. But we step back, and if you've ever prayed from stage before, or even if you've prayed out loud in your small group, don't we always fight that tension <laughs> where we're talking to our Heavenly Father, but there's three or four or five or a hundred people listening to us, and we fight the temptation to want to sound intelligent, want to sound like we have a close conversation, close connection with God. We have to remember that prayer is directed to an audience of one. Prayer is not a performance. Prayer is an opportunity to have a conversation with our Heavenly Father. That's our first principle tonight. We've got to pray quietly. Pray quietly. Not praying to sound impressive. Prayer is never a public performance. When I think of a man who modeled this well, I think of a man named Daniel from the Old Testament. After he was exiled into Babylon, at least three times a day, he would go back into his apartment, he would get down on his knees, he would shut the door, and he would have a conversation with his heavenly father. He prayed in private. And we need to do the same thing. Our private prayer life needs to far exceed our public prayer life. If we're only talking to God out loud in front of other people, or maybe during that obligatory pre-meal prayer, but we're not talking to God on our own, that's not a very good indication of health in our prayer life. We pray to an audience of one. It's not a performance. It's not a show. It's a conversation with our Heavenly Father. So we've got to pray quietly. Look at verse 7. Jesus sets another parameter for prayer. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Wow. He knows what we need before we ask. We could dive into that for hours, couldn't we? But what happened with the Gentiles, those who didn't worship God, they worshiped other gods in, in Jesus' time, they thought that the more they just babbled on and on and on and on, the more likely it would be that their prayer would be heard. And Jesus says, don't do that. You can pray simply. That's our next principle, to pray simply. We can't believe the lie that the more we talk, the more we babble on and on, the more likely it's going to be that God is going to hear us. That's just not how it works. God desires that we play, pray with simplicity, not sophistication. We don't need to use big words that we don't know. We don't need an advanced theological degree so we can use the right language. There's not certain magic phrases to somehow make sure uh, that God hears us. That's not how it works. But at the same time, we have to understand that Jesus isn't anti-long prayers. We see that Jesus sometimes would pray throughout the night during his ministry. We also see that Jesus isn't against praying the same thing over and over again. Think of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. Instead, Jesus doesn't want us to somehow think that our prayers are more likely to be answered if we just babble on and on. What a privilege that we just get to talk to God simply. So after 
after Jesus sets those two parameters, then he gives us a model prayer. Verse 9 says, pray then like this. It doesn't say pray this. He says pray like this. I don't think it's wrong to pray through the Lord's Prayer. I actually think that's a great thing. But instead of just using this as um, just something to recite, even more than that, this can be an outline for us to have conversations with God. That's what Jesus means, I think, when he says pray like this. So let me read uh, verses 9 and following. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Before we look at this line by line, um, I actually want to read from my favorite children's Bible. Continuing our theme with children's prayer, thought it'd be cool to read this text from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Now, if you have kids and you don't have this Bible, you should probably get it. Uh, And if you want to be like the coolest aunt or uncle in 2022, you can put this on your, I'm sorry, I forgot your Christmas present list. (laughs) But here's how they translate the Lord's Prayer. Hello, Daddy. We want to know you and be close to you. Please show us how. Make everything in the world right again and in our hearts too. Do what's best, just like you do in heaven, and do it down here too. Please give us everything we need today. Forgive us for doing wrong, for hurting you. Forgive us just as we forgive other people when they hurt us. Rescue us. We need you. We don't want to keep running away and hiding from you. Keep us safe from our enemies. You're strong, God. You can do whatever you want. You're in charge now and forever and always. We think you're great. Amen. Now, if that's what I'd memorize as a kid, I think the Lord's Prayer might have made a little bit more sense. But as we work through this, feel free to keep a finger in Matthew 6, and we're just going to work through this line by line. Our Father in heaven. Interesting that Jesus doesn't say my Father or just Father. He says our Father. The idea that prayer isn't just something that we can do individually. Prayer is something that we do together, communally. He's our Father. But our Father in heaven. As we look at the Gospels, Jesus completely shattered preconceived notions about what the people around him believed about Yahweh, believed about God. For Jesus to call him Father was radical. I mean, think of the the type of things that Father communicates that it it suggests a a closeness, a a relationship, a sacrifice and leadership and love. All the ideas that the title Father carries. It's similar to what Paul says in Romans 8. He uses the title Abba, which if we translated it well, it'd be dad or, or daddy, that we get to address God as our heavenly father. Paul doesn't, or Jesus here doesn't call him the creator or the ruler, which is true. But he calls him our Father, our Heavenly Father who longs to hear from us, who wants to have a conversation with us, who loves us, our Father in heaven. But then look at the next line, hallowed to be your name. I don't know the last time I used the word hallowed in any context outside of the Lord's Prayer. It just means holy, that God's name is holy, which is interesting that Jesus balances the first line with the second He is our heavenly father. There's this closeness. There's this nearness. But then he says, your name is holy. 
that God is, is holy, it means that he's morally perfect. There's no flaw in him. But he's also separate. He's other. He's in a completely different class than us. That we need to balance those two things. We need to hold attention that, yes, God is our, our heavenly father who longs to have a relationship with us. He's close and he's near to us. But at the same time, he's separate from us. He's other from us. He's holy. He's all-knowing and completely self-sufficient. He's the creator of the universe. He's the sustainer of our souls. He's the judge of the world. We need to hold those two things in tension. He's our father, but we also need to approach him as God. We need to remember who we're talking to. And that's our next principle. We need to pray reverently. We need to pray reverently. We need to remember who we're talking to. Before we can just start asking God for things, we, we have to begin by reminding ourselves who we're talking to, who we're praying to. Prayers out more than just getting what we want. Prayer is about my heart as it is anything else. Prayer is an act of worship, adoring God for who he is. Prayer realigns our hearts and directs our gaze toward the one who deserves our worship. Now, prayer can function in a couple of different ways. Prayer can look a little bit like a text message. You know how those work when you send them during the day? They're kind of quick. And when we think of a, that analogy in terms of our prayer, maybe you run, a, run into something stressful at work and, and in your mind can can offer a sentence or two and say, Lord, please give me patience. Please give me wisdom as I enter into this situation. Or you're at home around the holidays with your family and the tensions kind of start to rise like they sometimes do around the holidays. And you step back and say, Lord, please give me patience. Give me love for my family. Or maybe you have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone and, and you pause and, and ask the Lord, Lord, give me, give me boldness and the right words as I share the gospel. I think that's what it means to pray continually, to kind of keep having that conversation with God as we go throughout our day. Those are the text messages. But let's contrast those with the phone call, a longer, less interrupted, more focused time, a conversation with God. We need both of those in our life. We should be talking to God as we go throughout our day, but then we also should work to spend some more focused, intentional time talking to the Lord. I mean, imagine if you're in a dating relationship and you only communicate via text message. Probably not very healthy, gentlemen, so make sure you get on the phone. We've got to talk to God. But imagine, before we get onto that phone call, imagine if we take a minute or two and we just think about who we're talking to. We think about who we're praying to. We almost could envision entering into his throne room, picturing what it would be like to, to bow before him and having a conversation with our Creator. We just prepare our hearts to talk to our Heavenly Father. I wonder how that would change those conversations if we intentionally take time to just think about who we're talking to. We need to pray reverently. The next line says, your kingdom come. We're going to come back to that. The next, he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. Prayer is not a way for us to boss God around trying to get what we want. No, prayer is a way for us to connect to our creator, to have a conversation with him, to align our hearts to his, to live in submission to him. So we want to pray submissively. That's our fourth principle tonight. Pray submissively. Your will be done. It's a phrase that we hear Jesus use in the garden of Gethsemane, don't we? When he knows what he's about to endure, he's about to go to the cross and, and he knows that he has to endure all of God's wrath. And he prays, to the heaven, he prays to his father and says, Lord, Father, take this cup away from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. 
He's saying if there's any other way for redemption, if there's any other way for the world to be saved, Father, please accomplish it. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus models for us the submission that needs to be part of our prayer, out of our conversation with our Heavenly Father. We have to pray submissively. I wonder how often we use that phrase. Do our prayers sound like this? Give me safe travels, if you will. Help me get an A on this exam, if that's your desire. Please let me get that new job, if it's your will. Or ladies, maybe you pray, give that guy the courage to finally ask me out, if that's your will. I'm not sure we include that phrase, do we? I think our prayers sound a little bit more like this. Father, help me feel better and get over this cold, period. Give me a raise, period. Help my boss stop treating me like trash, period. Take away my singleness, period. I think we've got to use that phrase, if you will, if you desire. I don't think we use it enough. Because prayer is not a way for us to get what we want out of God. It's a way for us to align our hearts with God's desire and his will, living in submission to him. I mean, notice the whole first half of the Lord's prayer. It's not about us. It's about God. He's our father in heaven. His name is holy. His kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's all about him. Prayer begins with God, not with us. We have to pray submissively. The focus of our prayer is him. We also have to pray humbly. That's our fifth principle, pray humbly. Next line is, uh, Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. It's another phrase we don't pray very much, is it? Maybe we'll say, Father, thanks for providing for my needs today. Or maybe we'll gather with our family uh, before we eat. Or maybe you'll pause before you have lunch at, at work and, and you'll say, Father, thanks for giving me this food. But how often do we start the day by saying, God, would you give me what I need today? Would you provide my food today? And I, if I had to guess, it's probably been a while since we've done that. At least it has for me. I wonder if there's this temptation for us as you know, strong Americans to say, I've worked hard. I've provided for myself. I've I can take care of myself, possibly. But James is clear, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming from our heavenly Father. That God actively is providing for our needs. What would it look like even before our day begins to say, Father, take care of me today. Provide for my needs today. Would you even provide the food that I need today? When we pray that, it changes our perspective. The Lord does provide, then our hearts are filled with gratitude. We need to pray with humility. Look at the next line. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Confession and forgiveness should be regular parts of our prayer. Confession is not just limited to uh, one Sunday a month when we remember communion like we did yesterday. Confession should be regular. We've got to confess continually. That's our sixth principle, confess continually. Now, when we become a Christian, all of our sin, past, present, and future, is paid for at the cross. It's clean. Our debt has been paid. It's finished. So if you know Jesus here tonight, and all of your sin has been paid, then 
why do we still need to confess our sin? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Well, let me illustrate with a illustration. <laughs> that didn't make any sense. <laughs> Here's an illustration. Many of you know that Fritz was a youth pastor uh, back, in his, back in his day, however many years ago that was. And when he was a youth pastor, Fritz, you had the coolest car I have ever seen, a 1978 Chevy Chevette. Um, and just so you know, that is pink with black polka dots. Is that correct? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, 1978 Chevy Chevette. And you can tell the door doesn't really close all the way. Um, man, if, if we had like a 20, not all of us were around in the 80s, like what would be a 2020 comparison to this vehicle? <laughs> okay, so, you know, a pink Ford Escort with black polka dots, like that's what we're talking about. So imagine I'm one of Fritz's youth group kids, and I take his keys to his Chevette, not sure why I do that, but I take his keys to his Chevette, and I want to take it for a joy ride, and I total the thing. Now, totaling this, all it would take would be like a key down the side, but that's a whole <laughs> different story. So I total it. It's not drivable. Um, you know, there's going to be a bit of a divide in my relationship with Fritz, isn't there? Because he loved this car. And that divide isn't going to be fixed until I go to Fritz and I apologize. I ask for his forgiveness and I make things right. And when we become a Christian, we're adopted into God's family. We're called his son. We're called his daughter. Nothing we can do can change that. But when we sin, we hurt our heavenly father. We build a divide in our relationship with him. And in order to tear down that divide. We've got to go to him. We've got to ask for his forgiveness. I love 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a promise. God will forgive if we go and ask for his forgiveness. We need to be better at that. That when we sin, going to God and saying, Father, I'm so sorry for how I've sinned against you, to be specific and take that sin Dump it in his heavenly trash can. Turn away and move on. We need to be people who practice asking for forgiveness. And when we understand how much we've been forgiven, then we actually have the opportunity to extend that forgiveness to others. And that's exactly what Jesus says within the prayer. Forgive our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Jesus points out the hypocrisy in our heart if we accept, if we receive our Heavenly Father's forgiveness, but then we refuse to extend that forgiveness to somebody else. One theologian put it this way, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. But if, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we've minimized our own. Are you holding on a bitterness tonight? Is there someone that you've had a hard time forgiving? Have we minimized our own sin and maximized somebody else's? If God has forgiven you, he's asking you, he's asking me to extend that forgiveness to those who've hurt us. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness does not mean that we return to the way that things were before. 
But forgiveness means that we won't gossip about their sin. Forgiveness means that we're not going to hold that sin against them. It means that we're not going to use it as a bargaining chip. It means we're not going to tell other people about their sin. Forgiveness says, I'm willing to pay the debt, the price of their sin, and taking that pain, often emotional pain, and giving it to Jesus. Because all of that sin was paid for at the cross. We need to be people who practice confession and practice forgiveness. But look at the last line. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's an interesting phrase, actually. The Greek word periosmos for temptation. It's kind of a broad word. And at face value, it doesn't really make sense. Because think of what James 1 says, that God can't be tempted by evil, nor can he tempt anyone. But then we're praying that God doesn't lead us into temptation. Like, why are we praying for something that James tells us is impossible for God to do? Because I don't really love this translation. Maybe a a better way to look at this uh, prayer to view what Jesus says here, it sounds like this. Don't let us give in to temptation. Give us the strength to overcome. That's what Jesus is saying here, which fits perfectly with the next line, deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. Jesus helps us understand that the strength that we need to overcome temptation ultimately comes from the Lord and not from us. We've got to pray dependently. That's our next principle, pray dependently. How often do we ask the Lord for strength to overcome temptation? Or how often do we just think, I've got this, I can do this, I'm going to resist this desire. The power to resist temptation begins and ends with the Lord's strength, not mine. Think of 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation that's overtaken us except that which is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but he'll provide a way for you to stand up under it. That's a great verse to have in your back pocket. Have you ever believed the lie that this temptation is is too strong for me to resist? I certainly have. But it's a lie. It's a lie straight from the enemy. We need a verse like 1 Corinthians 10.31 in our back pocket, memorized, ready to go, so that when we face that temptation, we can say, God's not going to let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. He's going to provide a way for me to stand up under this. We need to rest on him and his power to resist temptation. So this week, instead of just reciting the Lord's Prayer, we can use these principles as an outline to grow in our prayer. How can I pray reverently today? How can I pray submissively today? How can I pray dependently today? How can we use Jesus' prayer as an outline? But you notice I skipped one in the middle, didn't I? Your kingdom come. The idea of kingdom is used over and over and over again in Matthew. Almost 50 times do we see that word appear. It's a simple request, asking that God's desire and his purpose will reign on earth. That's what kingdom means, God's rule in his reign. And when you and I think about kingdom and what it means for Jesus' kingdom to come, there's two aspects. There's a, a part of it that's already here, and there's part of it that's, that's not here yet. Part of the kingdom is already here, right? Jesus came, he died, he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and death. He, he rules and he reigns in the hearts of every genuine believer in Christ. But as we look at our world, is Jesus' kingdom here yet completely? No. We still see the effects of sin and, and brokenness 
There's still a kingdom of this world ruled by Satan. There's a kingdom of Christ. And we're still waiting for the day when Jesus returns and he conquers the kingdom of this world and he reigns forever and ever. That's what we see in uh, the prophecy in Revelation in chapter 11, verse 15. This is a really cool, cool prophecy. Looking ahead to the future, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We're waiting for this kingdom to come, for Jesus to return, to make all things new, to wipe away every tear from our eye where there won't be death or, or dying or disease or pain anymore. He'll make everything new. And there won't be a kingdom of this world. It'll just be the kingdom of Christ. That's what we're waiting for. So when we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, we're asking that Jesus will come soon. But at the same time, we're praying that his kingdom will advance in people's hearts. Because his kingdom moves forward every time someone believes in Jesus, every time someone embraces him as their king. So part of this prayer is evangelistic. But I think there's something dynamite we have to realize through this request. We have to understand who's at the center of Jesus' prayer. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. God's the center. Another theologian put it this way. The, the prayer looks for God to take action, not for worshipers to bring the kingdom into being. That's gold. Christians praying that God's purpose will be accomplished in the world. Not for us to just simply accomplish the work, the evangelism, to share the good news. No, for God to do the work because God is the one who initiates and completes the coming of his kingdom, not us. So when we think about evangelism, when we think about sharing our faith, when we think about being part of the advance of Jesus' kingdom in people's hearts, it's a work that God does. So certainly it begins and ends with prayer. Because ultimately, it's God who does the work in people's hearts. So his kingdom advances each time that someone trusts in him for salvation. So we need to pray evangelistically. That's our final principle tonight. Pray evangelistically. Well, the rest of our time... I'm going to just address those in the room that are followers of Christ. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, first of all, I'm so glad you're here. And I hope that by being here and being part of the young adult family, you will realize that there is nothing better than knowing Jesus. And if we believe the message of the gospel, that Jesus came to save us from ourselves and to rescue us and redeem us and give us new life, then the gospel is the greatest imaginable news. It's the best gift that we could ever offer someone. But evangelism, it begins with prayer. When we think about prayer, it reminds me of 1 Timothy 2. Paul says this, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. It's interesting. Paul asks that we pray for everybody, specifically kings and people in positions of high authority, like our governing authorities. When was the last time you prayed for our current administration or the previous? Our current governor or the previous? Or our current mayor or the previous? We hear a lot of complaining, don't we, about politics and about our 
leaders. I'm sure never from anyone in this room. Paul doesn't tell us to complain. He tells us to pray. I wonder what would happen if Christians spent more time praying for our governing leaders than complaining about them. But Paul actually outlines a specific prayer request. He continues, this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's what he wants us to pray. Not just for our governing leaders, for everyone. God desires that all people are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What a great picture that as long as someone has breath, they're not too far gone. They can still turn from their sin and they can believe in Jesus. We need to pray for all people. Well, you remember our vision, the power of one, pray for one person a day, engage one person a week, invite one person a month. Our goal tonight is that each of us who know Jesus can, can leave young adults with at least one name, a name that God's placed in our hearts, maybe somebody who, who doesn't yet have that relationship with Jesus that we can pray for. We can ask that they might come to know him. That's our goal tonight. And I hope that even in our small groups that we can take time to write those names down together. Somebody can record them. Maybe your leader has a creative way to do that. And we can follow up. We can pray for each other that God will give us boldness, that God will go before us. Prayer has power. Prayer is effective. I was talking to one of our small group leaders in the parking lot after church yesterday. And I knew I had to share the story tonight. He was substitute teaching a Sunday school class right before uh, our Christmas Eve services, a week or two before our Christmas Eve services. And, and he felt led, I believe by the Holy Spirit, to pause at the beginning of his class and say, Christmas Eve is just a great evangelistic opportunity. People come who don't always come to church and we've got to pray that somebody believes in Jesus. So he led his entire class in a prayer asking that God might save somebody might call somebody from death to life on Christmas Eve. Well, what happened at the one o'clock service? There was a family that came up to Pastor Jeff and there was a young man in his 20s who didn't believe in Jesus and he prayed right then and there to become a Christian. Prayer is power. Prayer is effective. And just imagine if each one of us pray for one person a day. Imagine what God could do. That'd be so cool. And I know that sounds like a high bar, praying for somebody every single day, but I think we can do it. Actually, I know we can do it. And if we miss a day, you know, we don't have to beat ourselves up. Let's get back on the horse the next day, but let's be people of prayer. So on your handouts tonight, on the back side, not only are there questions, but there's some ideas. How do we pray for somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus? There's some ideas there for you. So you can take a picture of that, you can stick it in your Bible, but maybe that would be a great outline to go through as you pray for that person that the Lord places on your heart. And make sure at the end of small groups tonight to spend some time in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's so good to be back with our young adult family tonight um, for bringing us to 2022. We give you our year. May we live in submission to your plan, your will, your desire for us. 
may we each be people of prayer, longing to talk to you, not out of obligation, not because we feel like we need to be good Christians, but because we just want to have a conversation with our Heavenly Father. And may we look back 12 months from now, able to tangibly see how we grew in our conversation with you. And we ask that you might give each one of us a name, or two names, or three names, people that we can be praying for, that don't yet know you, that we might have the opportunity to bring the good news of the gospel to. So as we take some time to dialogue tonight in our small groups, may you guide us, direct us. We want to be sensitive to your leading and your guiding as we uh, continue to share together tonight. In Jesus' name.